Hello friends, and thank you for once again joining me while we discover the elements of Lent. Those things in the world, those things that we can touch or see or feel that somehow help us understand the experience of Jesus on his way to the cross and the experience we have of following him there. Today's element is earth, or often referred to as mud. I really enjoy the look into the Bible, tracing this particular element as a theme and what it means. From when we're children, we love playing in the mud. There's something that draws us to its feel and to its ability to be sculpted and made into other things. And I think that that might be one of the ways where we demonstrate the image of God in us. Because when we look at our very first story, this is exactly what God was doing, playing in the mud and crafting things out of it. When we look at the second creation story in Genesis, the one that starts in Genesis 2, we see that rather than simply calling things into existence, let there be human beings or let there be light, the text says, beginning in verse 7, that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. We see God using his hands, actually forming, using the clay of the earth, this this image of a man and then rendering his own breath for the man to use. I think this is such a beautiful image. And what's really interesting that we may not notice when we're reading our English translation of the Bible is that the word for the ground and the man are related. The word ground is Adama. And the man, of course, we know is Adam. He gets his name from the earth from which he comes. And there is, by him having this name, not just that that's his substance, but the fact that we refer to him as Adam, that we call him this name, means that he always carries with him his groundness or groundedness, that there is something very close between the person and the ground. What I think is really interesting is when we look at what happens next, we see that obviously God in this story thought so too, because it says, and then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Isn't it interesting that God makes this man out of the dirt, and then God makes this garden also out of the dirt? And then he puts the man there. It's almost like Adam is also planted. He is given a grounding, a place to call home, a place where his own substance and the substance around him have something in common, where he feels kindred almost. Because he's from the earth, he understands it. And that's why down in verse 15, what's very interesting, it says the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to serve it and keep it. Isn't it interesting that that would be the job for the one who just like all the plants and trees and fruit and vegetables has also come up out of the dirt, has been created by God to come up out of the dirt and yet 
to remain in it, to still work in it. I think this is one of the most beautiful pictures in scripture. This notion that the man is from the dirt and yet has the breath of God himself. That he's both this spiritual and earthly being and those things are not in contrast to each other, but rather is what animates the man and what gives him his job. Just like God, he is now helping create new things. He's helping call life out of the dirt. And so it's not that he leaves his former life behind, but rather his new life as something with God's breath in it actually helps him to return exactly to the substance for which he comes and then also help it to live. It says that he was supposed to serve the garden and keep it. He's supposed to protect it and to do what's best for it. So this notion of humanity, this first picture that we get, is a very good picture. It's how God is being God and how that Godness is also coming out in humanity as it does the exact things in the dirt that God did as well. And just so you don't think that uh, it's only there in the Old Testament where we find this, this notion of human beings as the dirt that they come from is also a prevalent theme in the New Testament. Uh, One of the parables that we have that we find across the synoptic gospels is the parable of the sower and the seed. You remember that one. Jesus tells this in Mark chapter 4. He says that a sower went out to sow and that some of the seed falls on the path and the birds come and eat it up and other seed falls on rocky soil where it doesn't have enough depth when the plant springs up. And then other seed falls among thorns and it gets choked out and other seed fell into good soil. Right. And we know that when Jesus explains this parable to his disciples, he says that the seed is, is God's word and the soil is people. People are the dirt and not all dirt is the same. Some dirt has been walked on so many times that it's no longer uh, churned and aerated enough to actually receive the seed. Some is good, rich soil. Some, unfortunately, has lots of rocks in it. And so Jesus's teaching is that, yes, we're all made out of the dirt, but not all dirt is in the same condition at all the time. And so we have to understand that when we're sowing the word to know not only what kind of dirt this is, but perhaps that's how we know what does the dirt need. Maybe it needs water. Maybe it needs being tilled up. But remember that the call to human beings was to till it, to serve it, and to keep it. So not only are we as followers of Christ called to sow God's word, to spread God's love and compassion, but to serve the dirt, to serve our fellow human beings and help them to uh, cultivate themselves so that they can receive God's word. 
Now, this is also a daunting thing because we we find also in that first creation story that the ground, the Adama and the Adam, <laughs> their fates are intertwined. Once the man left the ground doesn't mean the ground left the man. And so, of course, when Adam and Eve um, do what they're not supposed to do and they eat of the fruit, one of the curses is very interesting. God curses the snake for bringing this about through his conversation with the woman. He curses the woman for not only listening to the snake instead of God, but also for getting her husband in trouble. And then what's very interesting is God doesn't curse the man. God curses the ground. Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground because of you, and in toil you shall eat of it all your days. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Isn't that interesting that God curses the ground, knowing that by doing so it also curses Adam? Because Adam and Adama, their fates are intertwined because they themselves are intertwined, are of the same substance. Perhaps what happened here was that Adam forgot his groundedness. He forgot that he was there to care for and serve and protect the garden rather than take from it what he wanted. He forgot the kinship between himself and the ground. And because of that, both of them began to struggle. I think this is a very interesting uh, notion for us as we're thinking about uh, as our pilgrimage to the cross behind Jesus. What areas of our lives are we introducing curse to other things around us because of our choices? So often, particularly in Lent, we tend to focus very much on our own path. We think about what we need to give up or what we want to cultivate in our lives. And sometimes we forget our connectedness to not only the rest of our community, but sometimes even to the rest of creation. And forgetting this creatureliness is one of the things that the biblical text suggests that actually got Adam and Eve into that predicament in the first place. And it's not just in this story where we see this. Um, when we look at the prophets, every time Israel has a problem remembering who it's supposed to be, oddly enough, the ground suffers. Joel 1.10 says, The fields are devastated, the ground mourns, the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, and the oil fails. And of course, this notion that the prophet's working with is that when Israel's unfaithful or when they are not being who they are supposed to be or who we might say they are created to be, the rest of creation suffers with them as well and even mourns. The prophet Zechariah says uh, in chapter 8 verses 11 through 13, but now I will not deal with the remnant of these people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. And now listen, for there shall be a sowing of peace. Notice that horticultural, botanical, sowing peace. 
The vine shall yield its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the skies will give their dew. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things, just as you have been a cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel. So I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Notice how all of these ideas are bound together. What we saw in the creation story, right? What we see here is that sowing peace, this what we might think of as a very spiritual thing, actually has real benefits in the world because not only shall there be a sowing of peace, but the ground shall give its produce. That, I believe, is a very realistic and a very concrete image and concrete promise that as you sow peace, so the ground also begins to be at peace and to be able to practice the identity it was created to have. And notice how God's ultimate program for this is so that Israel can be a blessing, right? This this relationship with the earth, this relationship to our dirtness (laughs) and to being this kind of soil is not just to remain at peace, but to also bless right, to bring forth this kind of abundance. And another prophet, if I can call him that, um, in the New Testament also wove all of this together. In Paul's letter to the Romans, in chapter 8, he writes, the whole creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, what does all that mean? Well, it basically means that creation is waiting, waiting for those children of God who understand their own creatureliness, who understand their own being creations of God, and have not forgotten not only what that means for their identity, but what that means for what they're supposed to do. That as the people of God live into who they are, we can spread blessing instead of cursing. And not just for our communities, not just for our children, but actually for all of creation. For animals and air and water, all of that. Because from God's point of view, all of that was what God created. And so any one of those things being able to live in its identity makes the whole rest of creation reminded of its goodness. And because God had taken human beings from the dirt in that story, the dirt is now bound up with human beings. And so we not, have, we not only have this impetus to live into our humanity, just for our own sake, but because of the whole of creation that is depending on being set free by us walking in freedom. Now, another thing that I love about that first founding story, and as we trace this theme throughout the Bible, is how man being born of the ground actually makes human beings holy which is probably why we're called to do the work that God himself did of tending, of planting, of growing, of making things. 
because in a sense, that is our holy, our set aside job. One great place to see this in the Hebrew Bible is in the story of Exodus when Moses is first called to God's service. And notice it has one of our other uh, elements. He's in the wilderness. In chapter 3, Moses leads his flock beyond actually just the mere wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. And he looked and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why this bush has not burned up. And when the Lord saw he had turned aside to see, God called to Moses out of the bush and said, Come no closer, remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, many of us are very familiar with this passage, and so this seems, uh, at first blush, not all of that interesting or different. However, something we often overlook is that the ground is holy, and the only thing that would be a problem are the sandals. The human feet of Moses are also holy. Otherwise, God would have just said, stay off the ground. And yet, it's only the things that human beings have fashioned for themselves, like shoes, that aren't holy. But the human body that was made from the ground, well, it was made from holy ground. Ground where God was at work. What an invitation to see our human bodies as holy ground. In fact, they themselves can go anywhere close to God. They themselves, in our, our strictly humanness, is perfectly holy. And there is nothing wrong or shameful about these bodies we've been given. They were taken from that good and holy ground. And so I think it's particularly interesting when we keep that in mind, when we move to a story in the Gospel of John, where Jesus also restores someone else's humanity by its connection to the dirt. John chapter 9 verses 1 through 7 say that as Jesus walked along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Now Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I'd like to insert my own interpretation here. Then Jesus facepalmed himself <laughs> and answered, Nobody sinned, neither this man nor his parents. He was born blind so that God's work might be revealed. And we must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with his saliva and spread that mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. And then the man went and washed and came back able to see. Notice how the way of restoring this man's humanity was reconnecting him to the dirt. The way to remove this blight of blindness was actually to cover this man's face in mud. 
which is very interesting. He could have just told him to go wash, right? And we would have that completely uncomplicated picture of simply washing blindness away. But rather, before the man can go forward as a seeing person, he has to go back to that creation element of dirt. He has to go back to that creatureliness. He has to go back to that first moment when God's hands pick up the clumps of dirt and fashion them into something. This is a really important story because so often we want to distance our humanity from holiness. And we sometimes hear rhetoric, even in the church, about holiness being separate from our lived bodily humanity, from things like food and drink, from things like sex and illness, from any of those things that we think of as antithetical to what happens in these holy places like sanctuaries and sacristies. However, the picture that we get throughout the Bible is that the holiness of humanity is tied to its earthiness. The holiness of being human is tied to our physical bodies and the lives that we live in them. What's interesting is the rest of this story about this man involves his parents and these relationships that he has with his family and with his synagogue and community and this notion of what it means to be human is very much seen in being human means being connected to all of those things that are around us and being able to have the opportunity and the agency to create new things, new connections. In fact, the man's parents aren't exactly thrilled that Jesus has healed their son because it's caused them a lot of problems with the synagogue and the synagogue leaders. And in fact, many people read this story and wonder if the man's even welcomed by his own family, which makes it all the more important that Jesus welcomes the man, that he goes and finds him and invites him to be part of his family. That he understands that those very human relationships, that human experience being lived inside these bodies made of dirt, is holy. And so I believe we were called to tend the ground. And sometimes, or maybe always, that also means that we're called to tend all the people who are made out of this very holy mud. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And I can't wait to be with you next week when we look at a different element. Be blessed.